Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how often do you think about the details of your birth? The time, the place, even the bed that your parents put you in? Probably not often, if at all. Maybe your parents wrote some of those details down somewhere, or maybe they've told you about when you were born. But we don't often think about those things, because most of those details are not all that important. They're not important to know. They, they may be interesting, and some of them may be important for things like registering our birth with the government and ordering a birth certificate. But, but in general, the details of our birth are not all that significant. But it's very different with the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. We know that because God tells us the details of his birth in his word. In the passage we read in Luke 2, 1 through 7, he, he tells us about the time. He tells us about the place. He tells us even about the kind of bed that Mary laid Jesus in. God wants us to know. He wants us to pay attention to these details because they are significant. In what way? Well, no doubt in many ways. In many ways. But with God's help, we hope this morning to see especially how these details show us the greatness of God's glory and grace. And we need to be shown that, don't we? We need to be shown the greatness of God's glory and grace, not just once, but over and over and over again. Because our natural instinct is to minimize both these things. To think little of God's glory and grace. We do that, of course. We do that before conversion. But we can do that and we can struggle with that even after conversion. We do it. We minimize God's glory and grace, don't we, when we choose to sin. And when we continue in sin. And when we despair because, because we have sinned and think that God won't forgive us. We do that, don't we, when we worry and we fret about what's happening in the world or perhaps in our own lives, as if God isn't in control, as if He's not able to fulfill His promises, at least not for me or you personally. We do that when we question God's willingness to save, His willingness to save us or His willingness to save others. We can think little of God's glory and of God's grace. But it's not right to think that way. And the details of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, recorded for us in these verses, Luke 2, 1 through 7, they show us that. They show us and they remind us of the greatness, of the glory, and the grace of God. That is what we hope to see as we consider our text under the theme, the Son of God born in Bethlehem. And we'll see three things that it teaches us about God. Number one, it reveals God's great faithfulness. Number two, it highlights God's supreme power. And number three, it demonstrates God's saving passion. So the Son of God born in Bethlehem, first of all, it reveals God's great faithfulness. The first three verses of Luke chapter 2, they tell us about this decree of this great Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, that all the world, all the Roman Empire should be taxed, or, or 
more literally registered for the purposes of tax taxation. And that meant that people had to go to their own cities, to the hometown of their families and their ancestors. And verse 4 tells us that that included Joseph, the man to whom Mary, the mother of Jesus, was betrothed. Joseph, it says there, also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now you understand that was, a, that was a long journey, a difficult journey for someone who was pregnant, whether it was by foot or whether it was on a donkey. You see, the, the town of Nazareth was in the north of Israel. It was a relatively small town. And, and Bethlehem, also a relatively small town, was in the south of Israel. And, and to get from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem, you couldn't just go straight down because in between Nazareth and Bethlehem was the territory of Samaria. And the Jews, they, they, they usually avoided Samaria. And so Joseph and Mary would have had to go around, around Samaria. And the whole journey was probably around 140 kilometers or so. It would have taken at least a few days. But they go and eventually they get there. And, and verses 6 and 7 go on to tell us that while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, Mary gave birth. Now when you read that, you need to ask the question, well, why does the Holy Spirit through Luke mention this detail? That the Son of God was born in Bethlehem. Why, why is that so important for us to know? And certainly one reason is because it reveals God's great faithfulness. It shows us, for one thing, that God is faithful to His promises in every detail. You see, God had made a promise many years before this, that His Son, the promised Messiah, the Son of David, would be born exactly in this little town, the town of Bethlehem. We find this prophecy in the Old Testament book of Micah. In Micah 5, the Lord speaking there to Israel and Judah through, through the prophet Micah. And in verse 1, he, he warns them that their enemies are going to triumph over them. He will lay siege against them and, and smite the judge or the leader of Israel on the cheek. In other words, Israel and Judah are going to experience the judgment of God through enemy nations, hostile Nations and even the reign of David's family was going to be affected. The judge, the ruler, the leader, the, 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 referring to the king of Israel, the king of Judah from David's line, would be smitten on the cheek. But that raises the question then, well, what about God's promise? What about God's promise to David that his throne would be established forever? And so in verse 2, the Lord announces that in spite of this judgment they are about to suffer. He says this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me or for me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. What, what is that about? It's about the promised Messiah. It's about the great son of David. You see, Bethlehem, Bethlehem was David's hometown. That's where he was born and raised. And that's why Luke calls it in our text, the, the city of David. And so this prophecy, this promise of a ruler coming out of Bethlehem is speaking about the coming of the Messiah, the everlasting king whom, whom God himself in 2 Samuel 7 had promised to David 
personally, that he would come from his family line and at the same time would be the Son of God. And this prophecy is saying that this one would come out of Bethlehem. That will be his birthplace. Now this is the only, only time, the only promise in the Old Testament about the birthplace of the Messiah. And it had been about 700 years since that promise. And yet here's the amazing thing. God didn't forget that promise. He didn't ignore that promise. He kept it. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, that King, that Ruler, that Messiah was born in Bethlehem. God is faithful to His promises in every detail. Doesn't that show us something of the greatness of His glory? Doesn't that make Him in His fullness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, so worthy of our complete trust, of, of our full confidence, of our total submission, and of our wholehearted praise? He's not like so many politicians who do not or cannot keep all the promises they make. He's not like so many of us parents who make promises sometimes to our kids, but then forget about them or fail to keep them. No, God didn't forget any of His promises when He brought His Son into the world. He was faithful to all of them in every detail. That's what Christ being born in Bethlehem tells us. And you know what that means. That means, that tells us that He will keep all of his promises, all of his other promises in every detail. Also all the promises that he has made in his word to you and to me. Yes, also his promise that whoever believes, whoever trusts in this son who was born in Bethlehem will not perish, have everlasting life. We can take him at his word. In fact, we should, no matter how impossible his promises may seem to us. You see, God's son born in Bethlehem shows us that God is faithful to his promises, not only, not only in every detail, but also even when it seems impossible. From a human standpoint, Mary's birth of the son of God was impossible. For one thing, she was a virgin. And yet it happened. The virgin gave birth to a baby. And not only that, but she gave birth to the Son of God in fulfillment of another 700-year-old prophecy. The prophecy in Isaiah 7 verse 14 that a virgin would conceive, a, conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And, and she gave birth to him in Bethlehem even though her hometown was 140 kilometers north in the town of Nazareth. Isn't this also amazing? And then you just think about the timing of all this. There, there have been no king from David's family for almost 600 years. Israel and Judah were in the grip of the powerful Roman Empire. It looks like David's line was going the way of every other royal dynasty in the world. 
eventually fading into nothing. Nothing could have seemed more impossible, you see, than the fulfillment of God's promise of a son of David born in Bethlehem who would reign forever. And yet what happens? Caesar issues a decree that results in Joseph of the house and the family line of David going to Bethlehem to be registered with Mary, his espoused wife, who's pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the Son of God. The one that Gabriel had told Mary would be given the throne of his father David and would reign over the house of Jacob forever and whose kingdom would have no end. And while they're there, she gives birth. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us that God is faithful to his promises even when it seems impossible. He was then. And he is now. And that's why we not only can but should take him at his word. Even when the fulfillment of his promises seem so impossible. And maybe that's, maybe that's how his promise of salvation seems to you. Impossible. At least for you. Maybe it's because of particular sins that you have committed. Things so wicked. Things so horrible that you think they can never be forgiven. Maybe even things that if the authorities knew about them, they would land you in jail. Or, or, or maybe you haven't done anything like that, but there's so much sin, there's so much evil that you see, so much wickedness and rebellion against God in your own heart that you think God could not mean His promise of salvation for someone like you. It's impossible for you to be ever, ever to be saved. Or at least it's impossible for you to be saved just the way you are. Right now, today, maybe you, maybe if you cleaned yourself up a little bit, then, then maybe. But, but not now. It's impossible. But it's not. No, because God is faithful to his promises, even when it seems impossible. Do you remember what he said to Mary? What he said through the angel? For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And that includes your and my salvation. And won't you go to him today? Won't you go to him now, just, just as you are? Won't you believe in his son, place your trust in his son, and put your confidence in him? And maybe you say, I can't do that. I can't do that. The Lord has to give me faith. He has to work in my heart by his Holy Spirit. Yes, that's true. He does. You do, he, he does. You, you cannot truly repent and believe without the work of the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. But you may never, ever use that as an excuse not to repent or believe. But you must, what, must, what must you do then? You must take your inability. You must take your impossibilities to Him and ask Him to do what you cannot do. To give you the repentance and faith. That's what He came, you know. He came and he was exalted to that right hand of the Father to give repentance and faith, to give the forgiveness of sins. And so, so take your impossibility to him, wrestle with him, wrestle with him like Jacob wrestled with God in prayer and don't let go until he blesses you. Cry out to him, call upon him, and he will deliver you, and you shall glorify him. That's his promise. And God 
is faithful to his promises in every detail, even when it seems impossible. That's true of his promise to save whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And it's true of his promise to preserve his people whom he has saved. To preserve those who have believed in his son. And what a comfort that is. Because the often, often the more you know yourself as a believer, even when you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the more you begin to see your weaknesses, the more you begin to see your absolute need of Him. And you realize, you begin to realize more and more, you cannot keep trusting Him. You cannot keep living for Him for even a moment left to yourself. It's impossible. It's impossible in your, in your own strength. You need His help. You need His continual forgiveness. You need His renewing strength, His keeping, His sanctifying and preserving work. And He's promised all that in His Word, in, in Christ, that Son who was born in Bethlehem. He's promised that those whom He has justified by faith in Him, He will also glorify and everything in between. But maybe at times you wonder if those promises are true for you. You look at yourself and you see your shortcomings, you see your failures. And it seems your failure is to love and to serve God the way he deserves. And it seems almost impossible. But the Son of God being born in Bethlehem assures you that it's not. It shows us, you see, that God is faithful to his promises in every detail, even when it seems impossible from our side. He will keep you. He keeps all of his people. And you will one day, he will one day glorify you in spite of yourself, in spite of myself. Because all God's promises in Christ are yes. As it says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, the Son of God born in Bethlehem reveals God's great faithfulness. But maybe you're thinking, well, what about everything that's going on in the world or, or perhaps even in your own life? And you're wondering, where is God in all of this? Is he in control? And that brings us to the second lesson about God that the theme of our text teaches us. The Son of God born in Bethlehem, you see, not only reveals God's great faithfulness, it highlights God's supreme power. And did you notice how God gets Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that Jesus is born there? Now, I, I thought to myself as I, as I was preparing the sermon, why didn't he just send an angel to tell them to go there? I mean, they have a pretty good record of listening to the angel. It seems like they would have gone. He could have done that. But he doesn't. So it says in verse 1, what, he does, what, is he, what happens? He says, it, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That's what God used. He used the royal decree from the Roman emperor to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem and ensure that Jesus would be born there in fulfillment of his promise. That highlights, you see, the supreme power of God. His power over rulers, even the greatest rulers, 
He's sovereign over them. He's in control of them, even when it seems like they are in control. Caesar Augustus seemed to be in control. He was, in many ways, the first Roman emperor. The one to unite the Roman Empire together under his rule, an area that by the time of his death was bigger than the mainland of the United States and had a population of 70 to 100 million. Caesar Augustus was the symbol of supreme power. He was so powerful that we're told that some of those he ruled even referred to him as Lord, as God, as the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. He was the most powerful man on earth. At his decree, at Caesar's word, all the people all over had to travel to their own city and be registered for the purpose of paying taxes. Even people who lived in a small, unimportant town like Nazareth. What greater display of power could there be? And yet God used him. This mighty, this arrogant Caesar Augustus to fulfill his promise and his plan. Yes, he even used his decree that all the world should be taxed. His, that supreme display of his power to accomplish his purpose. To bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Mary's child, the Son of God, the King of Kings, will be born there according to his promise. You see what it's saying. God's power is supreme. He has power even over the greatest rulers. Ultimately Caesar Augustus was only nothing more than a servant of God. He didn't realize that. No one really realized that. He was really nothing more than a pawn in the hands of God. To accomplish his purpose. His purpose to set up his own universal kingdom. Through his son. God's power extends even over the greatest rulers. Isn't that good and important for us to remember also today in regard to the powers that be? You know, the rulers and the powerful people and the organizations of this world can seem so mighty. And some of the things that they are doing are very concerning. And what's more, most, if not all of them, don't seem to have that much care for the God of the Bible. And in many cases, they are downright hostile to him and to his people. And we can wonder what's going on, what's going to happen. We don't know. And we can worry, we can fret, we can become afraid. But the events of the birth of God's son in Bethlehem calls us to do what? To be still. To be still. To be calm. The Lord is God. And he's just as powerful today as he was when he used Caesar to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born there. However powerful the great people and organizations of today may be, whatever they might do, whatever laws and decisions and decrees they make, God's more powerful than them. His power is supreme. Without his will, they cannot so much as move. And all that they do cannot stop or hinder his plan. His 
plan of salvation, of redemption for his people, for all that trust in, in him. And in fact, all that they do, even when they do all the things that they do in defiance of God and in defiance of his son and in defiance of his people, ultimately, ultimately, like Caesar Augustus' decree, will end up serving to fulfill his plan. Because that's what he does, you see. God works all things, it says in Ephesians 1 verse 11, according to the counsel of his own will. We may not be able to see how, but God sees how. And that's what matters. And that's why, that's why it's so important for you and for me to be on his side. To belong to him by faith. To submit to his Son, because you see, God's enemies, no matter how powerful they are, can and will never win. God's power is supreme. It extends over rulers, and therefore it also extends over our circumstances. Even when we don't see it. You think about Joseph and Mary, Caesar's decree just made their life harder didn't it? Not only did his decree force them to make a trip to Bethlehem while Mary was pregnant, but it took away more money from them and put it in the hands of a foreign power. It was probably hard enough for them to make ends meet, but Caesar's decree made it even harder and they could have been tempted to think, why is God letting this happen? What is he doing? Is he not in control? Doesn't he care? But he was in control. And he did care. The hardship they experienced, you see, was not outside the will of God. It was not something that just happened and, and God couldn't do anything about it. It didn't take him by surprise. It's not as if an angel came to heaven and had to inform God of what was happening in the life of Joseph and Mary. No, as someone said recently to me, there are no, no newspapers in heaven because God already knows the end from the beginning. In fact, he not only knows it, but he's planned it. It's all, it was all working out according to his plan. Even the hardship that Joseph and Mary were experiencing. It was working out for their good and for the good of all his people, for the good of all those whom he graciously brings to repentance and faith in his son. It was fulfilling his plan of salvation. His power extended over their circumstances and his power extends also over ours because he doesn't change. The hardships you have experienced. The hardships you are experiencing. The hardships you will experience in the coming year are not evidence of his lack of power. But all of our circumstances, also our hardship, also our, our trials, as painful and as difficult and as incomprehensible to us as they are, they are under his control. They're all ultimately part of his plan. And when you're in Christ by faith, 
That's a great comfort when you've begun to love the Lord God because God assures us in his word. In, a, in that well-known verse, Romans 8, verse 28, that all things, all things, including our hardships, our trials, work together for good to them that love him, to them that are the called according to his purpose. They work to sanctify us and to make us more like his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And that tells you that when you are in Christ, you see nothing, not even the greatest hardship you can experience. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, His almighty love. And that's why being in Christ your congregation, your visitors, being in Christ, being united to him by faith in him, it's the best place to be. Is that where you are? Yes, but you say, does, does God really want us? Does God really want me? That's a fair question. And it brings us to the third thing we learn about God from his son being born in Bethlehem. It not only reveals his great faithfulness and highlights his supreme power, but it also demonstrates his saving passion. And here I want to draw your attention to Luke 2, verses 6 and 7, which says this, And so it was, and it came to pass, that while they were there in Bethlehem, The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, there's such familiar verses. But they are verses, beloved, that are literally bursting with good news. They are bursting with the saving passion of God for poor and needy sinners. How so? Remember whose birth this is about. It's about the birth of the almighty God himself in the person of his son, the one through whom all things were made. And here he is, this great, this glorious God, humbling himself to be born as a baby. A real human baby that needs to be swaddled, swaddled in a, in, in a small, insignificant, and overcrowded town. You think about that. He's not born in a palace in Rome or in Jerusalem, the, the city of the kings of Judah. That would have been humbling enough, but instead he's born in this little town of Bethlehem, a town that doesn't even have a proper place, a proper room for him. You know, imagine that, children. Imagine that. Probably most of you have a room, a proper room in your house for you to sleep in. Maybe you have to share it with brothers or, or sisters, but you still have a room. But God, think of this. God, the Son, the Creator, the Lord of glory, laid His glory aside and willingly humbled Himself 
to be born as a baby in a town which in the eyes of the world was hardly worthy of notice and in a town that didn't even have a proper room for him and his parents. Doesn't that, doesn't his willingness to do that show you how much he desires to save sinners? Doesn't it show you how passionate God is for the salvation of sinners? How full of love and compassion he is? How eager he is to save sinners who are lost and dead in sin? But you know what shows that most of all in our passage? I think you do. It's his being laid in a manger. Because what is a manger? It's a feeding trough for animals. That's where Mary laid him. That was all that was available. There was no bassinet. There was no crib. There was not even a playpen. There was just a feeding trough. And that's where God the Son was laid. How low he went. The creator of the world. The one who made the things that you can see outside. The one who made the sun. Who made the blue sky. Who made all things. Who made us. In a feeding trough. Some of you have farms with animals. Would you ever put your baby in one of the pails or troughs that the animals eat in? Probably not, unless for some reason you absolutely had to. And yet God the Son willingly, willingly, not only came and was born in an obscure town with no room for him, but was also laid in a feeding trough. Don't you see what that tells us? Oh, that our hearts, all of our hearts would be melted. That our hard hearts would be shattered by this. It tells us that God's love, if I may quote J.C. Ryle, who's quoting scripture essentially, is a love that passes knowledge. It's unspeakable and unsearchable. It tells us that God's love is a love that passes knowledge. It's unspeakable and unsearchable. That's what his lying in a manger tells us. It tells us that he is a God most willing to save sinners. Yes, even the lowest and the filthiest and the most ruined of sinners. And you know, the rest of the gospel just confirms that. You see, the gospel is not just that the Lord Jesus was born. The gospel is that the Lord Jesus also died and that he died on a cross. He wasn't just born in Bethlehem. He was crucified on a cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The gospel is not just that he was laid in a manger, in a feeding trough. It's that he, God, the Son, in our flesh was laid in a tomb, in a grave. That's how passionate that's how willing God is to save sinners. 
Well, then don't think little of God's grace. Don't think that if you come to him in repentance and faith, empty-handed, nothing of yourself, that he will reject you. He will not. His being in a laid in a manger shows how eager, how willing he is to say. It's like, it's like the parable that Jesus told and Luke tells us about later on in his gospel account. The parable of the, the prodigal son. This Jesus being laid in the manger, it reminds me of that father in that parable who saw his son coming to him when he was yet afar off. And what did he do? He laid aside his glory. He laid aside his dignity. And he had no thought of his reputation or whatever of his glory and dignity. But he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and kissed him. That's what the Son of God being born in Bethlehem demonstrates. It demonstrates the saving passion of God. Do you see that with me? And so when you wonder if he really wants us, when you wonder if he really wants you, and remember this, meditate on this, the Son of God, born in Bethlehem, was laid in a feeding trough, and later in a tomb. That will tell you the answer to whether he really wants you. And then come to him. Come to him for the first time and again. The Son of God, born in Bethlehem, reveals God's great faithfulness, highlights his supreme power, and demonstrates his saving passion. It shows us, doesn't it, the greatness of God's glory. And grace. Oh, then let us bow in awe before God and live in joyful submission to him and to his son who was born in Bethlehem. Yes, let us by grace receive and rest on him alone for salvation and serve him as our Lord to the glory of God. That's the only way we can have a really blessed Christmas. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do bow in awe before you. And Lord, we pray that the truths of your word revealed to us this morning from your word would not be truths that depart and disappear from our minds and hearts in a few minutes but they would sink down they would move us to worship you not just today to worship and to serve you all of our days for you are worthy in Jesus name Amen